0: Hello everyone. Welcome to Recast and I'm your host, Saurabh Sardana. World around us has changed and recasted in a way that is difficult to imagine. It has become more complex and for some, overwhelming. This podcast series is the result of my hunger to inspire individuals and companies to unlock growth value through the power of understanding societies and consumers. It's not the ideas, but those who make ideas work will stay ahead. So I will dig into the untold stories, and unfiltered content from people who have made these ideas work for them. Stay tuned. If I try to sell you two kinds of yogurt, which one would you buy? The one which has 10% fat in it, or the other which is 90% fat-free? You are more likely to pick the one which is 90% fat-free because you may not like the idea of consuming a product which has 10% fat in it even though both are exactly the same products. In business, we call this as framing effect. And when you apply this widely for solving big business challenges, magic happens. To discuss this and a lot more, I speak to Tracy Hamilton, founder at Move Your Global, which is a next-generation business consultancy. Tracy is passionate about working with mission-driven founders and leaders in high-growth enterprises, helping them frame the right question and navigate at speed. Thank you, Tracy, for joining me today on my podcast.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me on the show.
0: Why don't we kick this off by understanding a little bit more about your background? I think from what I know and from whatever little I know about you, I think you've had a very, very exciting background. I think you've you've stayed in different parts of the world. You've intermingled with different cultures. And I think all of that is sort of, you know, reflective today in your work. So why don't we give our audience the opportunity to learn a little bit more about you before we dive into this conversation?
1: It's really exciting to be talking about these conversations that matter and very kind of you to open Humbly to ask about, about my personal story and, and my journey, I'm not sure if you've heard of the phrase third culture kids. This was a, a phrase termed that looked at children that had lived in different parts of the world and found themselves potentially at home everywhere, or for some of us, home nowhere. And I grew up in Singapore, a military kid, Air Force kid, based in the very northern parts of Singapore in Sembawang, In the late 80s, at the moment that we were at the height of our incredible Lee Kuan Yew blueprint, Singapore had the world's tallest building with Stanford raffles tower being put in. The MRT circle line had just opened and Singapore Airlines was wearing Givenchy suits and had worked with Cotty Lancaster to become the first carrier to have multidimensional branding with a fragrance, which was the Singapore Girl Fragrance. So a real invigorating moment to come of age as a young person. At that point in time at 11, I was then relocated back to New Zealand. Um, My father was transferred, and that saw me re-enter my beautiful home country, but of course, not a place that I knew so well, into an environment where there was sheep and wine and uh, obviously in the future, hobbits. And this is some of the things that really defined me as a person and as a professional.
0: So, Tracy, today you run a very successful business, which is in the transformation space. And I think what you just mentioned about, you know, sort of growing up in Singapore, like a Kiwi growing up in Singapore, I think changes something that probably was a part of your daily life. I mean, you go to school, you are exposed to a very different culture. You know, you come back home and you see a very different set of practices, you know, sort of being followed. Would you say that sort of those early days, sort of, you know, really prepared you, uh, you know, shaped you to sort of be in the space, or is it just something that happened by accident?
1: <laughs> well, you know, some people say nature, some people say nurture. And being someone who is passionate about agency and behavior change, I'd say nature has a whole, you know, I'm sure she has a whole lot to do with it, but I'm, I'm definitely pro-nurture when it comes to this debate. And that sort of mirror modeling, seeing those in your direct periphery take chances you know this is where resilience is is modeled the get up pick up pull your socks up give it a red hot go every single day that you have to turn up at a brand new school where you're the odd one out and you've got to go hi i'm the new girl you know you've got to have great compassion understanding and keep your eyes open to try and navigate the cues, and that's the piece of the layers that are most fascinating to me is that that cultural anthropology, the ethnography, the practices as you see them, and particularly in such diverse environments as we see in emerging Southeast Asia, you know the diaspora that we've got from regional to city and then across the continents and into our biggest, fastest growing cities, you've got gorgeous differences in practice every single day. And I definitely believe no matter whether we're delivering margin growth or launching in new markets or, you know, delivering a completely different process, we're working with humans. And so great change starts in units of one. One human at a time catalyzes, you know, the seven, eight billion of us. So really understanding how you turn up at the table is a really important little piece of, of, of advice for folks that are looking at doing this type of work.
0: That's a very interesting thought and I think we'll probably dive into that a bit more but but just help me understand I think like you just mentioned you know all it takes is just one person you know to turn up and I think things can sort of start changing from there and I think that's that's a very long term view that you take for every business but I think we live in a world which is ruled or governed by instant gratification i will put something on social media and i think if in next three minutes i don't get my 50 likes i think it'll sort of create a lot of dissonance so i think here's your philosophy you know to take a very long-term view around transformation around change but i think the reality on the ground is that you know people are looking for very fast results how do you balance that out is that a question that bothers you and, and, you know, how do you sort of deal with it?
1: There's so many ways that I could look at that question. I mean, for me, myself, I've got a bias to quick, fast, get a hypothesis to market. You know, I deliberately work in 5, 10, 15 day sprints, but that doesn't preclude the deep work that's required to start to frame up the question Because if the question's wrong, you're not going to get a quick answer. (laughs) You might get a quick answer, but it might not address the problem that you're trying to solve for. And yes, there is a bias to this chemical load of, you know, now, 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 now. There is a reason, however, that four out of five businesses fail and that there's a $9 billion delta in failed transformation. So I can go in and I can sell you a project that precludes that there's going to be some change in transformation. However, when we dig into these failures and this loss of investment and why transformation is getting a bad name out there is that the systems design that's required to support that change that scaffolding hasn't been done. And most of the failures around transformation projects per se have been around leadership. Failure to shepherd that project and program with senior management, failure to bring teams along for the journey, failure to acknowledge that it's actually not just a one and done. And also there's a, a nuance around the brief behind the brief. So a couple of years ago, I was getting a lot of inbound queries, a lot of people wanting me to run innovation workshops. Come and teach us how to do Lego, Tracy. Come and teach us how to do these amazing creative workshops. And I would say, to what end? You know, so what do you expect to happen after the innovation workshop? And the reality is, is that it's, it was theatre. It was to make people feel that they were in a creative space but not actually to then apply it to critical problem solving. In a similar way, transformation projects is it's very nice for an executive to stick that on their resume and use it as their next career move. The thing is, is most heavy lifting change will take, you know, if you're talking about one person and 70,000 people, that's a lot of matrix to systems design that needs to happen. It looks really great to be the global head of transformation and digital on your resume. But what have you actually done today? And so, this kind of quick gain, short gain, long term play is a really practical conversation that I have. I'm quite mean about it, which is I'll say, What's the problem we're solving for today? Okay, cool. Let's clear. We've got a clear sandbox on that problem statement. What's your hypothesis? Why do you think it exists? So, what are the behaviors, social norms, protocols, remuneration structures? You know, what's all the context of that problem statement? And yet, more so, the final question which is the really mean one which is what happens if we do nothing today and when you go oh actually actually that's when I know you're not actually ready for this committed marathon that is the long game but if you just want to do a nice workshop and have some jazz hands and a bit of lego I can do that too but let's get real (laughs)
0: No, I, I sort of really like, you know, the idea of, you know, you sort of calling these these meetings or these workshops as a theater. I mean, you know, they only have entertainment value, but I think till the time you don't go back on the floor and, and apply it, I think the change will just not happen. And I think we see that with so many organizations, because I think probably, you know, there's lack of ownership. Nobody wants to stick their neck out. Nobody wants to raise the hand. You know, I think, I think there's an accountability problem as well. When we are planning for these sessions, I think they have to be sort of end-to-end to see the real impact. But just let me go back to a more broader point. At the heart of every transformation or change is a good conversation, a conversation that is seamless, you know, which is structured, which is fun, which is engaging, and is relevant to the business problem or the context that you are sort of appealing to. Now, we live in a world which is digitally connected, but socially distanced. And I'm not using the term social distance in the context of COVID. I'm also using this term in the context of, you know, you you sort of go in public transport these days, be it Singapore or in Australia or in New Zealand, people are all consumed with their handheld devices. They're not looking at each other. There are no eye contacts. People are not making the attempt. They're not even trying you know, to get a nice conversation started. From where you look at it, when you are called into boardrooms, when you are called into organizations, you know, to work on big transformation projects, help me understand how do you sort of really go about making those conversations meaningful and making those conversations relevant to all the stakeholders so that, you know, they sort of matter to the organization at the end of
1: the day. The gracious growth occurs when we have these difficult conversations and we work through those knotty tensions And we come out the other side. And so two years ago, I was running coaching around authentic vulnerability, right? So for me, um, I was running innovation programs and I realized that I had executive leaders that love to use our catchphrase like fail fast, you know, bounce back, you know, good to great, all this catchphrases. And yet they'd never sat with failure. And so, when their teams came to them and said, you know, this is our prototype, we need funding, but it's going to take six months to realize the income, and the executive sponsor was gold on 30, 60, 90 days. And they went, six months? You mean I'm not going to make my budget for six months? And so, they weren't willing to take the professional risk to support the innovation process. But also, like for like, when their teams that they were supposedly shepherding fell over they took it personally because they sort of saw it as playing like lacrosse at high school that you had to be the top performer and so this is very unhelpful when it comes to the hypothesis-based problem solving which is nascent in an innovation process preparing organizations for really rich and meaningful conversations actually starts with deep self-knowledge and i work with my leaders to understand what they're amazing at Give them coaching around being able to voice their needs honestly. Because if you turn up and you hustle, you're going to get hustle back.
0: You're in a very interesting domain. And I think because of your work, you would have also observed through your process when, when people are having those conversations. Right. I think, uh, you know, there are two ways in which, you know, one can sort of, you know, categorize thinking. One is what I call as the constructive thinking. That's when, you know, you think out of the box, you know, you are more creative, you are actually going for something that you desire. Right. And I think the second part of it is what I call as the critical thinking, where you're, you know, thinking about trade-offs, you're thinking about viability and feasibility of those ideas. I think for me personally, thinking constructively and thinking critically at the same time is very difficult. You know, at times I just have to, you know, sort of shut myself and say, I will now think loud, right? I, I sort of really have to give that command, you know, to sort of, you know, reach there. And then, you know, I think once something has been created, I would go back and say, okay, now I have to sort of relook at my work and, you know, sort of start critiquing it so that, you know, I can give it a better shape or like a better form. Do you think, you know, you know, the way people have those meetings in their, in their little meeting rooms, the way people are bringing together teams, is there a fundamental problem that you see across different businesses in the way, you know, those are getting approached and, you know, those are getting done?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of it's this, the time crunch. And I've worked with various technology businesses that love to use sort of 15, 30 minute meeting blocks. Now, the problem with thinking in blocks is that it doesn't always address what's the problem we're solving for? Do we have the, information that we need to make the decisions? And has everyone turned up? And so you know, some of my guiding principles is making sure that whenever we gather to sort of lean into beautiful Priya Parker's perspective on, on constructive gathering is to really set the context of why are we meeting today? What's the job to be done? What are the roles and responsibilities? And what do we hope to gain out of, you know, what will happen after that meeting? So to have really clear guardrails of of what we're doing right now and for people to then to be able to sort of play tennis back and say, well, actually, Tracy, thank you for assigning me on that. I believe I need to run, you know, a little bit of analytics and I haven't quite got all the bits. So I'm going to be coming with a best guess. And are you comfortable with that? And for me to be able to play that role of going, okay, so we're gathering today and this is what we're working with. You know, it's a straw man, or actually we've got some very specific insights to discuss today. So it's not so much the way people are gathering, it's the way they are um, hosting. So really understanding, you know, what when we bring people together, we need to bring people together with a clear, defined objective and we need to host that meeting. um and that doesn't mean taking minutes. That actually means stewarding and shepherding and orchestrating that conversation and and just ho- and ensuring that it delivers the outcomes. The other thing I'm noticing um, and for those of us that, have always run diverse, remote, distributed teams globally. We've always had this bugbear, you know. I remember when it was 250 markets on a telephone conference call and probably 10 of those spoke English. And I have my lovely Lispy Kiwi accent. So we've got all the markets on the call and, and everyone's, you know, around that conference phone. In the same way, when you're spending 8, 9, 10 hours in front of a screen participating in these Zoom calls, Are you able to constructively or critically think? Is that domain and the back-to-back-to-back nature giving you enough time to decompress and to really sort of soak in what you've heard? In technology companies, typically gathering is used for decision-making. So it's like green light, red light, green light, red light. It's not used for discourse. So it's, again, what's the job to be done of this gathering?
0: I'm actually then now sort of tempted to ask you this question. I think in your organisation, I think when you are cracking complex business problems. Give our audience you know one or two tricks how to run good meetings with like good conversations how to be a good host Give like a couple of tricks so that you know everybody can learn something.
1: super and um, that sort of dovetails into my previous into some of my previous points which is I have a dislike of taking on briefs that aren't attached to a commercial goal. Why? Because when we're dealing with revenue, you know that matters to the president, the chairman and the head of sales. Therefore, you're likely to get executive attention and then it's your job to get executive buy-in. So pick your battles if you're an external consultant. Don't accept a fluffy, furry, undefined sandbox. And if you're given a fluffy, furry, undefined beast, then the technique is called reverse brief. And I always preface it with a humble, pardon me, but possibly what you're saying is you'd like us to blah, blah, blah. Yes? Or no, you know, and then I'll build my my meeting around it. I also see if you're familiar with the term experience design is that even hosting a gathering meeting workshop, it's an experience. So think about the parameters you have participants. So what are they thinking, feeling, doing and how do you want them to think, feel, do as a result of being part of that experience and what does that experience arc look like? So how are you going to prime them and prepare them for the meeting or workshop? What do you need to do beforehand? When they arrive, how are you going to bring them together to acknowledge that everyone's come from somewhere else and has busy lives? So how are you going to make them settle in the way that you would in your own home right you're not going to rush anyone and go okay so you've arrived so here's dinner no you might actually mix them a drink offer them some snacks in the same way that's the experience flow and when it comes to the heavy lifting part which is are your tools and systems clear robust is your platform working do the instructions make sense have you thought about accessibility? So, some of our peers are sitting in low bandwidth, low Wi-Fi, you know, feature phone environments, or do they have to be able to be on this sexy 5G platform? How can you make sure it's inclusive? And if we're to be the most inclusive, like, do we have people that have support needs, you know, do you have any differently abled peers that are going to need sign language or, you know, subtitling? So, I really sort of look at that entire outcome that we're gunning for and in the way that you would create a party or a piece of content you know, or a workshop, all of these things are deliberately pulled together.
0: I think what I what I find fascinating about our chat is, A, I find it fascinating. B, I also find it quite refreshing that I think for a change, I think, you know, this is one discussion where I haven't really spoken about technology. We are sort of focusing on people. We are focusing on relationships we are focusing on source where I think change can get reflected exponentially. I think technology, digital, all of those are just the tools sort of, you know, help us really catalyze actually the objectives that we are sort of seeking out. So just as a closing question for you then, help us understand a little bit more about your business, move your transformation. I think that that's what you call it, or probably I think it's a different name, and I and I got that wrong. And I think in uh, while while you're describing your business, I think also just help us answer this question: in next five to ten years, uh, if you if you wear your futurist hat, where is this transformation business really going? What kind of uh, shift you know it'll also see, and you know what kind of transformation will happen within the transformation space.
1: I love it. Super. And you got it right. You're you're absolutely onto it. Movio is actually a Latin word. It means to move, to change, to transform, to disrupt. And we partner with folks that self-identify as rebels and misfits and future shapers. And some of those um, leaders of the most extraordinary unicorn type businesses and others are these amazing, committed, tenacious lone wolves who are trying to transform some of our favorite legacy firms, you know. And so, those two engagements have a very different style. You know, when you're hired by a rock star, you know, you're basically getting on their bus and you're helping them drive faster. And you're doing that by making connections, by helping them bring their investors along for the journey, helping them create new pathways into consumer behavior. When you're working with the wonderful lone wolf, a lot of the support work is feeding these people for the journey so they feel like they've got a backstop so that they feel like they've got a cheer team behind them and it's giving them performance enhancing you know support so that they can go and be the warriors that have to take on the daily battle and slay the big dragons that are institutional businesses, you know, fight that fight. And so you're nourishing and nurturing them and giving them a safe haven to come home and, you know, lick their wounds and get ready to go the next day. So it's, it's different styles of, of coaching and engagement. And the next five to ten years is super interesting. We're going to see from a socio-political perspective, you know, I'm writing a piece at the moment off the back of Richard Florida and his perspective around the rise of the creative class. He wrote it about 10 years ago. It was looking at the brain drain from the middle of America to the two Eastern, Eastern and Western seaboards and the incredible IP and all of these amazing things that are happening. I've kind of played with his creative class and the Third Culture Kid piece, which is, it's called Fight for the Creative Class and How to Nurture a Global Mindset When Your Passport's Not Welcome. You know, I've come from this incredible place of privilege. I've talked to you about this amazing life that I've had, you know, Middle East, Africa, Asia Pacific, New York, three countries a week, flying all the time. Guess what? It doesn't matter if I have an amazing passport. I can't get in, I can't get out. And so what? And so, for our peers who also have lived this incredible, you know, live, be anywhere, our tribe, how do we nurture and raise? global thinkers when i can't take you to beirut and show you how amazing it is there when i can't do the journeying to see culture in practice alive how do we make sure that that happens so i'm i'm really intrigued around continuing to have this adventuring spirit if there's going to be a socio-political moment where we just won't be able to cross borders due to COVID and nationalisation and all of these things that we know are bubbling right now. One of the interesting opportunities, however, for savvier countries is there's actually a very, very, very delicious reverse brain drain coming. So some of the world's most impressive thinkers and doers, as you and I know, are expats, immigrants, refugees, and um, through the course of of what's been the last six months, some of us have lost our right of passage. Some of us have lost our visas. Some of us just wanted to go back to whence we were from and touch the dirt. And in that moment when we're on country, as, as, it's, as it's spoken about here in Australia, this deep connectedness and rootedness means that all of a sudden there's incredible talent that wants to go back to a domestic market. And it's going to be really cool to see what that What happens when it comes to levelling up? I think when we look at some of the big American tech firms and the reinvestment in places like India, I'm seeing such incredible enrichment and community. And it's so thrilling. It's really interesting to see what the next IP kind of bubble, you know, where that's going to come from. We In Singapore, we always kept our eyes on Tel Aviv, but I think it's going to come from more interesting parts of the globe. Um, not to say that Tel Aviv isn't an incredible place and very inspiring, but surprising new places. One of the other things that I'm also interested in is to steal a phrasing from Airbnb. Jonathan Middenhall did an amazing job when he repositioned Airbnb and that travel allowed us to be more open. To humanity and others so this othering if we're not traveling and we're not seeing and we're not experiencing and we're not getting that representation in our own lives unless we're consuming the you know diverse vast media from different places what will happen to our expectations around norms behaviors and style and how it manifests in culture and so that's something again as someone who's a brave adventurer and a massive, a massive humanist, that's my philosophical perspective on the world, As humans, you know, are capable of incredible things no matter where you're born. We've seen some really huge cultural moments happen around Black Lives Matter. In Australia, there's conversations daily around pronouns and the LGBTQ movement, climate. You know, if will this level of fierce appetite continue I will fight for it. And um, when it comes to what that transformation journey looks like, I hope that we continue into this brave wave of wilderness, this sort of rewilding of humanity, this vulnerability, this deep learning. My wish is that we're less reductive than the enlightenment, but we have the gorgeous conversations that spark the thinking. So on that note I would say thank you for allowing me to run playfully through a big conversation with you.
0: Thank you so much Tracy for for you know sharing these wonderful thoughts and I and I wish you the very best. Keep disrupting, keep changing and keep having conversations that matter. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to Recast with me Saurabh Sardana. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to leave a review and rating on your favorite episode. Also, if you want to chat with me, connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter.